Section 29 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Don't like our style. Oscar Wilde closes his remarks about America thus. But it is in the decay of manners that the thoughtful and well-bred American has cause for regret. I have repeatedly said this, but I am told in reply, We are still a young country, and you must not be too severe upon us. Yes, I answer, but when your country was still younger, its manners were better. They have never been equal since to what they were in Washington's time, a man whose manners were irreproachable. I believe a most serious problem for the American people to consider is the cultivation of better manners among its people. It is the most noticeable, the most painful defect in American civilization. Yes, Oscar, you are in a measure correct. Our manners are a little decayed. So also were the eggs with which you were greeted in some of our cities. That may have given you a wrong impression as to our manners and their state of health. We just want to straighten out any little error of judgment on your part as to American customs, and to impress upon your mind the fact that the decayed article which, in most cases, you considered our miasma-impregnated etiquette, was what is known among savants as decayed cabbage. Mr. T. Wilson the gentleman above referred to has accomplished one of the most remarkable feats known to modern science. Though uneducated and perhaps inexperienced, he has attracted toward himself the notice of the world. Though he was once a poor boy, unnoticed and unknown, he has risen to the proud eminence from which, with pride and covered with glory and sore places, he may survey the civilized world. He entered upon an argument with Mr. Sullivan, knowing the mental strength and powers of his adversary, and yet he never flinched. He stood up before his powerful antagonist and acquired a national reputation and a large octagonal breadth of black and blue intellect, which are the envy and admiration of fifty million people. This should be a convincing argument to our growing youth of the possibilities in store for the earnest, untiring, and enthusiastic thumper. It is an example of the wonderful triumph of mind over matter. It shows how certain intellectual developments may be acquired almost instantaneously. It demonstrates at once that phrenological protuberances may be grown more rapidly and more spontaneously than the scientist has ever been willing to admit. A few weeks ago, Tug Wilson was as obscure as the Greenback Party. Now he is known from ocean to ocean, and his fame is as universal as is that of Dr. Tanner, the starvation prima donna of the world. Few men have the intellectual stamina to withstand the strain of such an argument as he did, but he left the arena with a collection of knobs and arnica clustering around his brow, which he justly merited, and the world will not grudge him his meager acquisition. It was due to his own exertions and his own prowess, and there is no American so mean as to wrest it from him. 
thousands of our own boys who today are spearing frogs or bathing in the rivers of their native land and parading on the shingly beach with no clothes on to speak of are left to choose between such a career of usefulness and greatness of brow and the humdrum life of a bilious student and pale sad congressman will you rise to the proud pinnacle of fame as a pugilist boys or will you plug along as a sorrowing, overworked statesman? Now, in the springtime of your lives, choose between the two, and abide the consequences. Etiquette of the Napkin It has been stated, and very truly, too, that the law of the napkin is but vaguely understood. It may be said, however, on the start, that Custom and good breeding have uttered the decree that it is in poor taste to put the napkin in the pocket and carry it away. The rule of etiquette is becoming more and more thoroughly established that the napkin should be left at the house of the host or hostess after dinner. There has been a good deal of discussion also upon the matter of folding the napkin after dinner, and whether it should be so disposed of or negligently tossed into the gravy boat. If, however, it can be folded easily and without attracting too much attention and prolonging the session for several hours, it should be so arranged and placed beside the plate where it may be easily found by the hostess and returned to her neighbor from whom she borrowed it for the occasion. If, however, the lady of the house is not doing her own work, the napkin may be carefully jammed into a globular wad and fired under the table, to convey the idea of utter recklessness and pampered abandon. The use of the finger bowl is also a subject of much importance to the bon ton guest who gorges himself at the expense of his friends. The custom of drinking out of the finger bowl, though not entirely obsolete, has been limited to the extent that good breeding does not now permit the guest to quaff the water from his finger bowl, unless he does so prior to using it as a finger bowl. Thus it will be seen that social customs are slowly but surely cutting down and circumscribing the rights and privileges of the masses. At the court of Eugenie, the customs of the table were very rigid, and the most prominent guest of H.R.H. was liable to get the G.B. if he spread his napkin on his lap and cut his egg in two with a carving knife. The custom was that the napkin should be hung on one knee, and the egg busted at the big end and scooped out with a spoon. A prominent American at her table one day, in an unguarded moment, shattered the shell of a soft-boiled egg with his knife, and while prying it apart, both thumbs were erroneously jammed into the true inwardness of the fruit with so much momentum that the juice took him in the eye, thus blinding him and maddening him to such a degree that he got up and threw the remnants into the bosom of the hired man plenipotentiary, who stood near the table, scratching his ear with the tray. As may readily be supposed, there was a painful interim during which it was hard to tell for five or six minutes whether the prominent American or the hired man would come out on top. But at last the American, with the egg in his eye, got the ear of the high-priced hired man in among his back teeth, and the honor of our beloved flag was vindicated. An Infernal Machine 
A singular thing occurred in England the other day, and in view of its truth, and also in order that the American side of the affair may be shown in the correct light, we give the facts as they occurred, having obtained our information directly from the parties who were implicated in the affair. We hesitate to take hold of the subject, but our duty to the American people demands some action, and we do not falter. During the past winter, there arrived in London a suspicious-looking metallic box with a peculiar thumbscrew or button on top. It was sent by mail and was addressed to a prominent landowner. This gentleman had been on the watch for some explosive machine for some time, and when it was brought to him, he at once turned it over to the authorities for investigation. The police force, detective force, and chemists were called in and requested to ascertain the nature of the infernal machine and, if possible, where it came from. Experts examined the box and, with the aid of a cord attached to the suspicious button on top, pulled open the metallic box without explosion. The substance contained therein was of a dark color with a strong smell of ammonia. All kinds of tests were made by the experts in order to ascertain of what kind of combustible it was composed. The odor was carefully noted, as well as the taste, and then there was a careful chemical analysis made, which was barren of result. In the midst of the general alarm, the London papers with large scareheads and astonishers gave full and elaborate reports of the attempt upon the life of a prominent man through the agency of a new and very peculiar machine loaded with an explosive of which scientists could gain no knowledge or information whatever. It looked as though the assassin was far in advance of science, or at least of professional chemists, and the matter was about to be given up in despair, when the following letter arrived from San Antonio, Texas, United States of America. My dear sir, I sent you by a recent mail, prepaid, a small metallic box of bat guano from the caves of Texas for analysis and experiment. Please acknowledge receipt of same. Morton Freewin. Then the experts went home. They felt as though science had done all it could in this case, and they needed rest and perfect calm and change of scene. They hadn't seen their families for some time, and they wanted to go home and get acquainted with their wives. They didn't ask for any pay for their services. They just said it was in the interest of science, and they couldn't have the heart to charge anything for it. One chemist started off without his umbrella, and never went back after it. When he got home, he was troubled with nausea, and they had to feed him on cracker toast for several weeks. We tell this incident simply to vindicate America. The London papers did not give all the proceedings, and we feel it our duty to place the United States upon a square footing with England in this matter. Of course, it is a little tough on the experts, but when we know our duty to our magnificent country and the land that gave us birth, there is no earthly power we fear, no terrestrial snoozer who can deter us from its performance. End of section 29